Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roten, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Meredith, you had a story this week about a comprehensive review of the university's president. It was a big announcement earlier this month at the faculty senate meeting when chairman of the board of trustees, Nelson Carbonell, announced that in the spring, the board will be doing a comprehensive review of the university president. This is his first one, and it's part of the president's contract that says that he he will be reviewed every two years, um, which is something completely new. So it should be interesting to uh, look out for that in the spring. In this context, what exactly does comprehensive mean? Yeah, comprehensive just means that every year the president has to be reviewed as part of like his performance and that goes into how much, you know, bonus salary he gets, but this is going to be comprehensive meaning that uh, more people than just the board will be involved in doing that. So, it'll be the board and faculty senate members are supposed to be involved and uh, other members of the community in just saying like what he's doing well, what he's not doing well and can improve on. The Board of Trustees is still kind of working on a plan for that since this is something completely new that they've never done a two-year review before of a president. So they're trying to figure out how they're going to do this plan and they're coming up with details. Uh, they, the Nelson Carbonell said he would know more details as the time draws closer. Um, so we just know it's going to involve more than the board right now. Would this have been something that officials would have wanted to conduct with former university president Stephen Knapp? Essentially, Nelson Carbonell said that they knew they wanted to put this into the new president's contract because they said that they waited too long to do a comprehensive review of the former president, and they didn't give uh, former president Knapp enough feedback so they, that's why they want to do this with the new president. Um, and so they were trying to correct a lot of issues when they were selecting the new president during the committee search. When I talked to former faculty senate chairman Charles Garris, he talked about the fact that the committee, they didn't really discuss how they would review the president, but had just discussed that they, there were certain areas that they wanted to see improvement in, in the, the new president. And is this something that other universities do as well, evaluating their university presidents in this way? Yes, it's something that a lot of universities do. When I talked to uh, a few experts in relationships um, between boards and their president, the experts that I talked to said that it's really important to review presidents in this way, giving them feedback, because so many times you see in the news that a president is fired, kicked out, whatever, because of something they did. And sometimes the president just has no idea what it was and no idea that their performance was not satisfactory. They said that it just really wasn't productive to suddenly review a president and decide he or she is not performing the way you want them to perform when you have a chance to review and give feedback to correct course. I spoke to one expert who said she was surprised that GW was performing evaluations every two years because they can be really time-consuming and expensive if you have to hire outside consultants and you have to do so many interviews with different stakeholders, so that can take a lot of time out of the president's office. And will these results be made public at any time? Carbonell said that more details about the review would be available closer to the spring, but did not say whether the results will be 
available to the public. Well, thanks, Meredith, and be sure to keep us updated in the spring about this. Thanks, Leah. I'm here with our academics editor, Lauren Peller, who had a story this week about the Asian American Student Association trying to start up a minor. Thanks for coming on, Lauren. Thanks, Leah. It's so nice to be here. Tell me what's happening with this minor right now. The Asian American Student Association um, is currently working with faculty in the English and Theater and Dance departments in the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences to propose and create a new minor in Asian American Studies. And this push from the students has been going on for the last year, but right now they're working with faculty to create a curriculum and then hopefully they will propose this minor to officials um, in the coming months. And how did this start? What were they doing last year? The president of the Asian American Student Association, Jeremy Lee, launched a petition last year to see if students would be interested in advocating to create this minor in the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences, and it received about 200 signatures. And this was all happened last year, but um, the group decided that now they were going to work with faculty because they saw that there was Um, more potential for progress and more potential that officials would approve the minor if they were um, working with faculty rather than it all being student-led. What would they hope to have this minor look like? Are there any other examples throughout the university of minors or majors that it might resemble? The proposal for the minor is very preliminary right now. Um, They want to incorporate courses on Asian American literature, on Asian American arts. They also were hoping to create an internship and community service component to the minor. But when we spoke with officials, um, specifically the Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies in CCIS, Elizabeth Chaco, she said that she hasn't heard from students yet um, about pursuing this, but she mentioned that typically if students or faculty want to create a new minor or major, they would typically go through um, the special interdisciplinary major or minor option where they could create a minor and prove to officials why it's needed. So, for example, the neuroscience minor last year was created that way. And also, other students besides Jeremy have been involved um, in advocating on behalf of the Asian American Student Association because they feel that GW doesn't have any resources for them to pursue studies in Asian American studies. And why is this important to students? When speaking with students involved in the Asian American Student Association, um, to them is important because they want the option to learn about their culture and the Asian Asian American history and literature and arts. And they feel that right now GW just didn't doesn't have the resources to provide them that. They also feel that this is part of their identity on um, being Asian American, and they would also hope that by creating a minor, not only would it allow them to pursue studies in this topic that they're all very interested in, but it would also create some sort of community for them to feel that their voices are heard, which they all, when I spoke to a bunch of students involved in the association, they felt that it was definitely very important um, for them to feel recognized on campus. And what exactly are the next steps for these students? Right, so right now the students are currently working with faculty in the English department and in the theater department. Um, The theater department is housed in Corcoran, but it's all under the Columbian College. Um, And they're currently working with faculty to create a proposed curriculum that will include a variety of courses and focus on Asian American studies. So they're currently writing up the curriculum for the minor right now and figuring out how they're going to officially propose this to CCIS officials in the coming months. Well, thanks for coming on, Lauren, and be sure to keep us updated on the status of this minor. Yeah, thanks for having me, Leah. 
assistant news editor Sarah Roach is here to tell us about a story that she's been reporting on for a long time. The 18th credit has been a topic that has been going around for about a year now, and uh, we finally have some updates on it. At the Board of Trustees meeting uh, Friday, the board um, approved the, a free 18th credit, so that moves the credit cap from 17 to 18 credits for all students. Previously, it was just uh, students in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, students enrolled in the University Honors Program, or students who are taking a university writing course who are allowed to take up to 18th credit. Um, but starting in fall 2019, all students will be able to take 18 credits. Can you talk about how we got here? Yeah, this is the result of advocacy um, from the Student Association. Um, it started as, as an idea from former President and Executive Vice President Erica Feynman and Thomas Vasigno. They originally, you know, put this on the table. And the Executive Vice President and President from last academic year, Peak Senchua and Sidney Nelson, um, who sort of moved the needle forward on this. So the Senate moved this issue to a student-wide referendum that students approved 96% um, of students indicated that they approved of the 18th credit and more than 50% indicated that they would use uh, the 18th credit if they were given the opportunity. So from there, Nelson and, and Chua continued conversations um, with officials and eventually presented a report to the Board of Trustees at a board meeting in May. And the report sort of included all the research that they'd done um, on including an 18th credit and in some ways that officials could incorporate that into um, the fixed tuition, whether that be by slowly incorporating it with like different groups of students maybe by starting with like students with a certain GPA and then um, and then widening it out to all students but um, as you can see like Friday it was just unanimously passed by the board so yeah and this has been something that's talked about for a while so what were kind of the initial reactions from people who had been involved in the process what current student association president Ashley Lay said was that this is sort of something that students have wanted for a while obviously from the from the student-wide referendum so she said it's really going to help um, you know low-income students who who might not be able to pay for that 18th credit. And I think that affordability factor um, was really echoed by a few other officials and a few other student leaders. Chua, the former president of the SA, said that that was one of the biggest hurdles that they had to jump over um, to get officials on board with the 18th credit because faculty and officials were nervous that it was going to be too expensive to allow all students to enroll in this. But, I mean, University President uh, Thomas LeBlanc said that two-thirds of students get the 18th credit waived and anyway, so it, it won't really impact its finances too much. Lay also mentioned that this would help students who want to study abroad and some of their if some of their credits don't carry over, then they can use this 18th credit to sort of expedite uh, the process of graduating and make sure that they're on track um, for graduation. You spoke with some experts uh, who talked to you about the benefits and downsides to adding this additional credit. Uh, what was the summary of what they said? So experts were basically talking about how, um, I mean, what student leaders had already said that this will benefit low-income students um, who might not be able to afford paying for an extra credit, um, students who study abroad who might not be able to carry over all those credits. Um, but some experts were also saying that it could hurt students, especially uh, first-year students who are just starting out and they haven't sort of like acclimated to school yet. And like adding on this extra credit for them to take could actually hurt them um, in trying to, to overwork during their freshman year rather than just um, adjusting to school. Thanks for updating us on this story, Sarah. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Margo, this week we're talking about one of your stories for the Colonials Weekend Guide. Yes, so Colonials Weekend for its second year in a row is 
conjoined with Parents Weekend and Alumni Weekend. And so this story was about alumni who may be coming to a newly revamped campus after years of not coming. You know, there are a lot of reunions coming around. Um, and so they're returning to a campus that has these residence halls that are comp- entirely built up like District House and some t- with new names like Adams Hall becoming Lafayette Hall or Ivory becoming Shankman. And some other changes that they might see is the restaurants that they knew and loved and attended in their college years are now shuttered and replaced with other stores. What's an example of something that closed a few years ago? Well, just as recently as June, Lindy's Red Lion closed, which was like an iconic bar for for GW students in the past. I remember even just a few weeks back, I interviewed Candace Kane, who is a, who was a producer, and she said she bartended at Lindy's and based a lot of her TV show that she produced on Lindy's and her time there. And so when she heard it closed, she was just so ticked. But there are different bar spots that you can go to on or around campus that, you know, will replace that void. Um, And they're a little cleaner, probably, too. There's Church Hall in Georgetown, which opened this year. That is like a two-floor bar hall with vaulted ceilings and a great bar and food menu. It also has an added gimmick of being a game hall, which has giant Connect Four sets and lots of picnic-sized bench tables that seat like 12, and more than 10 flat screens to watch all different kinds of sports. What's an example of an iconic dessert spot that closed, and what are some alternatives? Sure. So one that was located in the heart of 2000 Penn, Coney Island, was around for 27 years before it closed its doors in 2014. Actually, the owner, he had a new venture, and it was Papa Box, but actually right next to Papa Box, a really nice new um, ice cream place called Bone Matcha has a line out the door often and full of delicious matcha ice cream and cups and waffle cones. And also, if you're looking to not even leave 2000 Pen, there's Captain Cookie, which is a staple for the late night snack community here on GW. Oh, and yeah. I think alumni would totally go in on an ice cream sandwich. Definitely a GW classic. Yes. And what about TGI Fridays, which recently closed and was definitely a hub for student activity on campus? A definite party, like a pregame spot for for the campus that I think will never be replaced. And I think that it really hurts when you realize you'll never get as strong and as cheap a Long Island iced tea as you would at that joint. But it also has received a lot of controversy in the last few weeks for just being one of the worst rated Yelp restaurants in DC. So maybe it's for the best that it did close. But in case you were trying to find something like that, a greasy bar food spot, well, there is totally campus food options on G-World that will satisfy that. And Pizza recently opened at the Hotel Hive, which is a great spot. It's a, it's a DC classic. It has locations pretty much everywhere and just opened its shop on campus in 2017. Well, thanks for coming on and telling us some alternatives to some old campus classics. Anything to help these alumni. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editor Margot Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Lauren Peller and Sarah Roach for joining us. 
see you next week.